0: Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today I'm excited to speak with Mel Cassidy, who is a longtime teacher and facilitator. She's the writer of the blog Poly She teaches about consent culture and skills for healthy, honest non monogamy. And coaches clients around the world and she lives in British Columbia, Canada. Welcome to the show, Mel. And thanks for having me on the show. You're welcome. So first I want to ask you a little bit about where you live. You're you live in a unceded territory. So um since I'm this uh gringo down here in the States, can you explain to me what that means? It sounds really interesting.
1: Yeah. So um the uh This is a way of honouring and recognising that the land that I inhabit um, is is, uh, colonised land. Um, So Mm -hmm. these lands were never ceded to, um, you know, officially to to the um, English when they came over to North America and um, I very passionately believe in the movements towards decolonization and bringing more awareness around Indigenous rights. Um, around the world and so the the land that I live in if you look it up on a map you'll see it as Vancouver Island um, or the west coast of British Columbia Um, but the people who have traditionally inhabited this land are the Coast Salish people um, who who consist of um, several different um, tribes and groups uh, not all of whom survive today unfortunately Um, but I live in land that has been traditionally inhabited by Comox uh, Nation Um, the land that I'm on is considered part of Canada, um, but the
0: history of it is still very much present here. Mm. Wow, thank you so much for that. It's an important um, symbol and an important cause, and I've become much more aware of it with the whole standing rock battle and everything. So I really appreciate that. Wonderful. Okay, so um, let's move on to the topic of non-monogamy, which is the main purpose of our radio show here. <laughs> um, yeah. I noticed you on a Yeah, I noticed you, uh, you had posted some of your writing from your blog on a relationship anarchy Facebook group. Um, and I really liked what you wrote, and that's, that's why I contacted Mel. So um, tell us a little bit about why you describe yourself or what what it means to describe yourself as a relationship anarchist. Sure.
1: Um, I think if you ask 10 different relationship anarchists that question, you will probably get 10 different answers, uh, as Mm -hmm. is the nature of anarchy. So for me, um, relationship anarchy is a, a kind of philosophy, a set of beliefs, if you like, that influences the choices that I make in the way that I relate to people and um, the style of relating that I engage in. Um, It's very much an approach that is about um, getting out of the prescriptive models of relating. So in uh, traditional Western culture, we've grown up with this idea of you're supposed to get on the relationship escalator, and that's a signifier of being a successful grown-up, and um, but you know, you, you're going to date someone and, and move in with them and eventually get married and have this lifelong relationship, and, and that's a great model, but the obligation of that model uh, doesn't work for everyone, and so for me, relationship anarchy has been a way of getting out of uh, the model that, that felt like it was confining me before, And within relationship anarchy, the focus is on personal autonomy and sovereignty um, and figuring out how to engage in relationships in spaces that feel authentic, where both people are, or all people, I should say, engaging in the relationship are doing so on the level where they feel authentically met and um, that they can be fully present. So what that looks like mm-hmm. on a practical level is that um, no one has to do anything that they don't feel infused uh, about doing, that people get mm-hmm. to honor uh, their inner truth in the way that they engage in relationships. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank and you so much. And relationship anarchy. Um, oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> no,
1: go ahead. I, I was just going to add a thought that, you know, relationship anarchy gets very tied into uh, polyamory, but I don't think that it necessarily needs to look like polyamory. Um, I know some people who describe themselves as relationship anarchists, but live a monogamous uh, relationship style. Um, I just think that relationship anarchy for me has looked more like
0: polyamory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So how does a monogamous person, can you explain that a little bit more How about the separation between relationship anarchy and monogamy um, how does relationship anarchy show up in monogamy how it would show up um,
1: is that a monogamous agreement uh, between two people comes about from a space of authentic desire rather than default it isn't an autopilot Uh, you have to do this because society tells you to do this kind of decision. Right. Uh, if both people feel that, yes, my, my authentic needs and your authentic needs are going to be mutually best met by having a monogamous relationship, then that's what we're going to do. And we do it for as long as that works, as long as that is meeting our needs. And, uh, And, you know, the the other thing with monogamy is we tend to think of monogamy as just this one thing, but there's actually different dimensions of it um, and and different dimensions of relating because we can have different levels of monogamy or rather fidelity um, within our emotional relationships, within our sexual relationships, also within our social relationships, and also in the way that we practically relate with other people, like sharing homes and Mm -hmm. finances
0: and resources. Right. Okay, I'm just taking some notes here because I have so many questions and thoughts. <laughs> okay. So, Great. Um, yeah, uh, this leads very much into the work that you do around the relationship detox, um, monogamy detox workshop that you're leading. But I read a blog the other day about um, the first step to opening an existing relationship is often forgotten. And that first step is untangling the enmeshment. So a lot of couples, yeah. when they want to, they've been together for a while and they want to open their relationship, it doesn't work because they haven't acknowledged the enmeshment. I, I, I'm calling it enmeshment. I don't think the author called it that. But what I mean by that is there's these certain expectations that you, um, if you're my partner, then we're going to spend every Saturday night together. We're going to go through the relatives on the holidays or whatever, the expectations are that that's just a default. And so my question for you is, um, well, so one more thing that I remember about that article is um, for couples who want to open their relationship to start having um, dates, start making dates, um, instead of just assuming that we're going to spend every Saturday night together, to ask each other for a date that night and start treating each other as dates instead of just assuming that because we're a couple we have to do that. So then if I want to date another lover on Saturday night, my partner falls apart because that's our night, but it was never really talked about. Do you see what I'm saying? So can you address those default modes in relationships? Yeah,
1: that that thing around enmeshment, I call that the two-headed monster. Um, Mm -hmm. If you think back to Sesame Street, uh, that wonderful two-headed monster muppet, you know, one half wants to go one way and the other half wants to go the other way, but they have to keep following each other around. And um, that falls under uh, something that I I call the monogamy hangover. And Mm -hmm. we deal with this hangover not just when we're opening up relationships, but also when we go through the end of a relationship, uh, whether that is a breakup Mm -hmm. or um, a bereavement or Another way that a relationship would end, um, when I was uh, working with people as a, as, a da- as a matchmaker at a dating agency, I worked with a lot of people who were freshly divorced and trying to get back into the dating scene, and they were still dealing with uh, that leftover of, of how do I deal with not being enmeshed with somebody immediately. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, within within that enmeshment, as you refer to there, there's a lot of... Um, I would say it's a sense of complacency. Um, when you've been in a long-term relationship with someone, you get into these really comfortable rhythms, and that's great. Uh, but it can get too sedentary, and just like mm-hmm. when water is sedentary, it, it gets kind of gross and, and, um, and <laughs> moldy. Uh, <laughs> and moldy. <more>, yeah, <laughs> bugs start reproducing in it. It might smell. Um but we, we need to shake things up. We need to filter through. And um, if you look at, uh, you know, in the realm of conscious relating, uh, this is about not taking anything for granted, not taking your partner for granted, not um, making assumptions that just because they have said yes to one thing at one point that they're always going to be a yes to that. And, and it's mm-hmm. challenging for us because as human beings, we're always looking for security and safety, and we find a lot of security and safety internally by basing our relationships on a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and those assumptions are usually not magic out of thin air. They're based on our experiences. Um, but if we don't take time to recalibrate every so often, and as you were saying, that example from that article of you know, making a plan to have a date regularly, um, it's easy to just uh, – sort of melt away from each other. And especially when people are opening up a relationship, I mean, opening up a relationship is going to challenge you like nothing else does. It shakes mm-hmm. the foundation of everything. And people can go through a process of grieving the relationship that they're still in. And there's a kind mm-hmm. of cognitive disconnect in that. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really good to have that time of um, you know, reaching back in. If you think of exercising, uh, you know, just to build muscle strength, you don't just lift weights. You also have to stretch, and mm. uh, we have to stretch back and forth uh, to be able to um, open our relationships in a in a supported
0: way. Mm. So I have a ten year old um, relationship that I would have referred to in the past as a primary partnership. Um, although we are not nesting partners, um, but our relationship is starting to grow more towards the relationship anarchy model. And what's coming up for me is um, what will happen when I grow old, because I don't have children. So mm-hmm. what would you say to about relationship anarchy for the, because it seems like there's a certain assumption around, security and caring for each other as we age in a monogamous relationship. That's part of our um, monogamy programming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what would you say to somebody who wants to practice relationship anarchy who might be afraid of what do they do when they grow old?
1: Yeah, I think that's an amazing question. And and I hear these questions being asked more and more. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Designer Relationships uh, by Mark Michaels Mm -hmm. and Patricia Johnson, I love that book. It's my favorite book as an introduction to um, non-monogamy. Um, they talk about four dimensions of monogamy, and I, I referred to them a little bit earlier, and I, I actually feel that these are um, dimensions of intimacy and relating. And one of these dimensions is practical uh, relating. And this mm-hmm. is how we, how we set up uh, the practicalities of our life, like who do we live with, who's our emergency contact, uh, who do we share finances with? who's the next of kin? in default monogamy world, this would be your spouse or mm-hmm. your common law partner right um, mm-hmm. or your child. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When we don't have that, we open ourselves up to a wider possibility of creating uh, security in our practical landscape of, of our relationships mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm that means that you are engaging in conversations with your friends and looking at, well, what is our level of commitment to each other? I mean, this is another aspect of relationship anarchy that uh, someone that you're sexually involved with is not automatically prioritized over someone who's only a platonic relationship. Um, mm. And and the idea being that there is the potential to actually create a much uh, wider network of support for oneself by coming Mm. together in community, either like a formalized, intentional community or even a a loosely based community that exists in your sort of rough geographical area or maybe includes people who are the other side of the world, but with whom you have agreements and uh, common goals around, yeah, like, when When we if, if this ever happens, if I'm ever incapacitated, um, this person's going to come and, and help me, or if they ever need me to come uh, look after them, I can go and do that
0: mm, I love that, so it's really about speaking into um, who we are going to be to each other. we may not even be lovers, um, we may just decide that we're going to go to the nursing home together when we're eighty or whatever it might be um, so then like you said, potentially you can have an even larger network of people that care for you when you get old than your one default spouse would be in the default world.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you see so many, I, um, I remember with my, my grandmother, when, um, her husband, my grandfather passed away, there was a loneliness in her and, Mm -hmm. um, I look back at that. I mean, I was a very young child when that happened and I look back at that and I think how different it would have been if she felt more of a network of support and she had a lot of family, Um, excuse me, she had a lot of family to support her through that. Um, But I think it might have been a different experience for her if she'd had more same age peers or even um, people who were younger than her who weren't necessarily family. But we're still friends who still, um, you know, came to her as an elder within her community.
0: Right. And when I think of doing that, I think of the effort that it takes to go out and, um, you know, have heart-to-heart talks, really vulnerable talks with people that you care about, um, you know, ask for commitments from people, map out what those commitments might look like. It seems like it takes a lot of work, and I think a lot of us are lazy we want to just find that one person, know that they'll be there forever, and not have to think about it anymore. But like you said, that causes an algae-filled cesspool of, of water that doesn't have any movement in it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, I think we all need to take a little bit more time to – and that's another criticism that people in open relationships get in general, is that, oh, you have to do so much processing. Um, what do you say when, when you get that criticism? <laughs> um oh i say a
1: lot of things to that i mean i non-monogamous relationships they seem more complicated uh but i think there's a difference between complex and complicated and um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know uh one-on-one relationships are pretty complex we just uh, it's easier to put on your blinders and ignore what's mm-hmm. going on. I mean, I, I look back, like, mm-hmm. I was in a monogamous relationship. I, I was married for seven years, uh, and we were together mm-hmm. for eight. And I look back at that now with hindsight and a lot more uh, knowledge. Um, and I look at how much we just avoided the conversations. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we finally had the conversation about, this is not working, it the most shocking part of that was how long both of us had known that it wasn't working and neither Mm. of us had really addressed it because it just felt easier to coast along
0: in what was comfortable for us. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that is our tendency. So how can we um, stretch ourselves? Like you said, (laughs) you know, strength training also requires stretching. So how can we stretch ourselves to, invest in relationships more um, since we know that will create a better life. Um, Do you have any um, advice that you give to people who feel fear about doing that or fear of reaching out to people or um, don't understand why they need to make that investment? I think it starts with doing
1: work on yourself. Uh, I very strongly Mm. believe that we, we can only experience in our relationships with others, what we're able to experience in our own solitude as well. Mm, Um, Beautiful. The more we know our own selves, the more we have the capacity to engage with others and and know that we are not engaging beyond our capacity. I see this a lot that people, we, we get taught this kind of story around Martyrdom and self-sacrifice, especially if you've been raised and socialized as female, uh, there's a lot more of that scripting around that, and um, we we kind of go, oh, I have to I have to do this for them, and so we stretch beyond our capacity, and uh, then we don't actually get our own um, needs fulfilled, and very often the other person's also doing the the same thing, so we sometimes end up existing in these spaces of mutual compromise and stretching, but nobody's actually feeling uh, 100% fulfilled. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that a piece of that, um, like getting, getting out of that, is to really look at yourself and ask yourself that question, what do I need to feel safe? What do I need to feel met? What do I need to feel fulfilled? And then the second question is, what takes me out of that experience? What takes me out of a space of emotional connection with someone? What takes me out of a space of physical connection with someone? Um, and, and then also ask yourself, what is it that I bring to those experiences? What is it that I bring to sexual intimacy? What is it that I bring to social spaces of intimacy? And the more you can refine and identify who you are and how you show up in these spaces, the clearer you're going to be able to articulate with other people and find where that, those mutual spaces are between you. And you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to have, you know, this, this like completely mutual overlap to uh, relate The beautiful thing about relationship anarchy is that whether you're having multiple sexual relationships or not, you can have one sexually exclusive relationship, but you may have your other aspects of relationship met in different ways through different relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like those questions. Those are great, especially what takes me out of connection or whatever, what takes me out. It's really good to know that about ourselves so that we can ask for what we want and need from all of our relationships. So thank you. That was a great little gem. Okay, so um, Mel, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal story and how you first (laughs) knew that you were non-monogamous and what was your first experience of that? Mm.
1: (laughs) Well, my first experience of that was uh, as a kid, I remember watching uh, the show Dynasty um, and <laughs> there, there, there was a, a storyline in there and I don't remember the characters' names, but, you know, the, the one character, he, he had an ex-wife that was still kind of in the picture and the new wife. And I remember watching that and not understanding why there had to be drama between this, like, ex-wife <laughs> and current wife. Um, and as a kid, I had all these make-believe <laughs> stories uh the the main make believe story i had was about being this like fairy creature in the woods who had three husbands and i would i would really i had a very creative mind uh as a as a kid and and i would make up these elaborate stories and i would tell my mom and she'd be like you can't have three husbands at the same time <laughs> <laughs> so I, I you know there's some part of me that was always uh open I think to challenging the norms um, mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't really know about polyamory as a thing until I was in my 20s I mean I'd read articles about you know things in the free love movement and, and I'd, I'd read something in a magazine when I was 16 about a woman who was pregnant and living with her two boyfriends and I was like oh that's cool but you know I could never do that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but when I got married I, I said to my uh, my, my fiancé husband. You know, I I am attracted to women. I, I knew that about myself. I had a lot of internalized homophobia going on around it because of the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, you know, at some point, I'm probably going to want to explore that. And I had also not had a lot of sexual experience before getting married. And I, I said to him as well, like, I may want to explore sexually with other men, too. And the agreement we came to was, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, which is not the best agreement to make, (laughs) (laughs) right, (laughs) in retrospect. um, But, you know, we we had some, we had a really wonderful relationship, and I'm very grateful for um, the journey that he and I took together together. and it it's lovely to see him flourishing in his life um now in in the partnership that he's in as a monogamous partnership and um but we we had some experiences um as a couple and um it was a friend who introduced me to the word polyamory for the first time and it just hit like this epiphany like wait you mean this this thing is a thing people do this <laughs> And I started Googling and looking up everything I could, and then getting very confused about everything because there was so little available. It was very, like, a lot of blogs and, you know, like, uh, Reddit threads and obscure videos on YouTube. Um, and there seemed to be people who were polyamorous who were very. Um, very queer and alternative and like punk. And I I was a little intimidated by that. And then there were people who were very spiritual and doing yoga. And I I resonated with that, that I was like, how do I access those communities? And, and it, you know, it took me a while to figure it all out. And, And in the meantime, um, my husband and I had separated and, um, I, I stepped into, uh, bravely and a little blindly, into the world of uh, honest non-monogamy.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And so were you able to find, well, before I ask you this question, I just want to validate something that you said um, when you talked about the show Dynasty and mm-hmm. how you couldn't understand why there had to be so much drama between the current wife and the ex-wife. And I thought, wow, that was kind of like the whole basis for the show was that tension and that conflict between those two women, right? Like Joan Collins and Linda Evans. I can remember them. They were two big stars. And the whole (laughs) show was based on that tension. And just think, if there was polyamory, there there wouldn't even be that show. (laughs) And, you know, so many movies and shows. You know, if they just understood about polyamory, it would just eliminate the need for most of the popular culture that we watch. <laughs> oh, so, so I thought much. that was really so. funny. Yeah. <laughs> another, another movie that bugged me like that was um, the Sex in the City movie. Um, mm-hmm. The one woman, she, uh see, while she was separated, to, I think they were taking a separation, her husband had slept with a woman one time, immediately came to her and told her, was super vulnerable and honest, and she kicked him out of the house for like six months or four months or something, including over the holidays, wouldn't let him be with his kids. And I just thought, what the hell? This man, he came to her, he was honest, his heart was open, they were separated anyway, and that was justified in that movie. And this is supposedly a sexually progressive series, you know? So, yeah, it's just really common in our pop culture. Well, and, and, you know, those, those, uh,
1: story tropes, um, are, are, as you said, they're prevalent throughout pop culture and that again feeds back into all these, um, these toxic uh, ideas around what monogamy is supposed to be and about what relationships are supposed to be that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, you know, I, if I'm in relationship with you, I get to have some kind of ownership over what you do and don't do and, mm-hmm. um, and the, the level of drama that can come out of um, these kind of toxic beliefs, it really holds us back. It it, it, it mm-hmm. creates, I think it creates pain and it creates separation. Um, and it, it can have these ripple effects on, on everyone else that are, you know, they, they hurt. There, there's pain in there. Mm-hmm. And I ask myself the question often, like, how can how can i approach my relationships from my heart and with more love and and with more kindness and that that Mm -hmm. to me is the ultimate question is how can we relate in such a way that we are kind to one another even Mm -hmm. if we have differences even if we feel hurt how can we relate Mm -hmm. with kindness
0: right good question to ask so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. We're speaking with Mel Cassidy, a Canadian teacher and facilitator, writer of the blog PolySinglish, and a relationship coach. And we're talking about Mel's early experiences of polyamory. So Mel, did you find a community in British Columbia? Was there a big enough um, circle of non-monogamous people there that you could go out and meet some people.
1: There's a huge community. Um, mm. I mean, when I when I first separated, I was living in a rural part of BC that um, was was did not have a huge um, polyamorous population, at least not one that was very open about it. Um, but mm-hmm. I moved into Vancouver, and Vancouver is, I mean, it's a very cosmopolitan city. Um, I think statistically it has a very high percentage of um, people who are interested in polyamory and other forms of um, open relationships and non-monogamy, and there's some active uh, discussion groups there. Um, Also, there's the Canadian Polyamory Advocacy Association that was started in B.C. that exists to help support polyamorous individuals and families uh, with the legal system. And um, so there has been a lot of um, outreach through them and I was able to find the discussion groups and social groups and um, slowly, gently create create a network and, and find the people that I resonated with.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So what were some of your early experiences like when you very first started this lifestyle? <laughs> I remember uh, going into a
1: uh, one of the discussion meetings and realizing that most of the people in the room were sat together either in couples or in triads or in quads, and I was the only person there who was totally alone and single mm. and um, feeling a little bit like I was a piece of fresh meat. And I, I now know from <laughs> For, talking like the to unicorn, other people... Right? <laughs> yeah, I I now know from talking to other people and, and from some of my clients too that I'm not the only person who's had this kind of experience. Um, uh-huh. And, I mean, it, it's it's scary in any kind of social situation, I think, to enter as, like, I don't know anybody here. I'm the new kid in town. Um, mm-hmm. But th- there wasn't a whole lot in those days of awareness around what it was like to be... Engaging in polyamory without a primary partner and mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't want to enter into that kind of relationship escalator thing again I, I really wanted to get out of that I felt that it hadn't worked for me and it wasn't like I hadn't tried to um, mm-hmm. make it work And um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and so I decided like that's how my blog started because There was a lot of expectations, and even in some of the relationships I was having, it felt like a lot of um, assumptions that were based from monogamous experiences were entering into the relationship, and were interfering with our ability to connect authentically. Um, And so I really wanted to try and understand that and and, uh, wrap my head around that. so that's why I started my blog, why I started Poly English, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I found other people who were doing similar work. And um, the, the Solo Polyamory group was born on Facebook. And, and that's been an amazing journey. Um, and now there's so much more available for people who are doing relationship anarchy, who are doing Solo Polyamory. And uh, it's been really beautiful to both witness and be part of that that journey for this community. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're saying when you first started dating, um, I don't remember the exact words you used, but I think you were implying that there was a lot of the default monogamy programming showing up, even though you were dating people that were supposedly non-monogamous. Um, can you yeah. describe a little bit more specifically what that looked like? Um, I think so. <laughs> One of um
1: one of the things that I, I noticed uh come up was this idea of um the the expectation of time commitment. Like if I haven't seen or talked mm. to you in a few days, something must be wrong in our relationship. Um that mm. we have to be seeing each other consistently, um, or that I have to see you as much as I'm seeing my other partners as much as you seeing your other partners. And um and I, I get that for some people that that is what they need, um, and and what works for them. But I remember being in a situation where that felt like, oh, this 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 feels a little imposing on me, and and that doesn't actually match where I'm at. Um, mm-hmm. And so it felt like this, um, the scripting around like, if if I matter to you, then uh, we should mm-hmm. be doing this so the the ways that we measure our successful relationships, the way that we are measuring this is a good relationship versus this relationship isn 't working uh, seem to be very tied into some of the monogamous uh, scripts there was also um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know I, I I grew up in England and, uh, for part of my life, and um, I love to debate <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. you know I would sometimes get into debates and and the people I was dating would be like oh, I feel uncomfortable because we disagree. And I was like, well, we can disagree and, and still love each other, can't we? And um, I think that's one of those other uh, monogamy hangover ideas that um, I mean, we, we kind of tie in like the, our personal value as being reflected by the ways that our partners behave. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a hard one to get out of, I think. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a challenging one to, to move move
0: mm-hmm. away from. Right, 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 so um first, I heard you talking about kind of uh, expectations and assumptions being put on on you um, mm-hmm. without actually having a conversation about it, so it seems like the remedy for that would be um, let's talk about how often we want to see each other, let's talk about um, what our needs are in this relationship rather than just making an assumption um, that you yeah. should behave a certain way just because we had sex once or whatever
1: (laughs) yeah and i I should add this wasn't just this wasn't a one-way street i was also making a lot of assumptions back
0: (laughs) Uh uh-huh right you had to do your own um monogamy detox yeah monogamy detox right yes yes i did (laughs) yeah cool and so did you um, what was it like when um, assuming that you've you've dated women since then, and so can you can you talk about what that was like to be able to start to date women as well Oh, that's a hard one.
1: I'm still figuring that out <laughs> um, uh-huh you know being i mean my my identity as queer is something that is still evolving, and um, mm-hmm. I mean it was very exciting to start dating women, but I think that um, something that goes underestimated is the, the effect that internalized um, homophobia can have on us. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that I kind of like uh, I, I dove in without really looking at it too much. And then I kind of pulled back and, Ooh. and for my own journey, it's something that I've only recently started re-exploring. Um, mm-hmm. But what I think um, has been really beautiful is, seeing how the examination of that in myself has opened me up to a a much deeper understanding of who I am and how my early childhood experiences influenced um, the choices that I've made in life and the way that I have acted and reacted to things, Mm -hmm. Um, which I I think, you know, this this is one of the great things about polyamory. It ends up being this. Uh, fantastic self-development workshop, and you get to learn mm-hmm. um, so much, so much about yourself through uh, not being able to avoid uh, or run away from from things because eventually one partner or the other or all of them are going to reflect it back to
0: you. hmm Yes, um, I remember seeing something else that you wrote about your spirituality and how that's influenced your approach to polyamory. I one time posted something on a, on a, on a non-monogamy group um, asking how other people, um, how if their, their spiritual beliefs or their spiritual practices help them manage or transform jealousy. And I didn't mm. get any replies to it. And for me, my spirituality and like connecting with who I really am as a spiritual being is a huge part of me being able to transform jealousy into compersion so mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how your spirituality influences your approaches
1: yeah um, you know uh, the late Deborah Annapole wrote a beautiful essay about um, compersion um, mm-hmm. and looking at jealousy as this um, this tool for spiritual understanding in oneself and uh, I think that essay has really influenced my approach when When I feel uh, jealousy, and and I like to get into the actual felt experience of what that is, to me jealousy is a feeling in myself of um, something's making me feel small and I want to feel um, seen. Or Mm -hmm. uh, more accurately perhaps to say um, there is some need that I have that isn't being met. and, And that's why I'm not feeling seen right now. So finding a way to reframe that and going into what is it that my soul is asking for here? What is it that my heart needs in this situation? Um, and it's very easy to get caught up in story around what's mm-hmm. happening and making assumptions about you know, that someone's doing something intentionally or deliberately or with some kind of malice or, uh, you know, we get into um, patterns of aggressive and, and violent communication because that's a lot of what's been modeled for us in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, it, it, and it's an ongoing process of reconnecting in with um, finding out what, what the truth is in your heart about what's your core need that isn't being met. And accessing what that is. What are the strategies for meeting that need? And is it something that your lover can meet, or
0: is it something that you can meet in other ways? Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that. Right. And so, how does
0: spirituality come into that for you, for your personal <laughs> path?
1: How does spirituality come into that? Um. You know, the spiritual path that I grew up with is um, one that's rooted in uh, Siddha Yoga. And Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I don't talk about it uh, very much uh, publicly. so I I suddenly feel a little nervous um, Mm. coming to this this subject. Um, Something that my teacher said is, if you ever have to choose... Um, if you ever have to choose between uh, following um, tradition and, and following your heart, to choose the path of your heart. Because love is the highest spiritual path that there is. And mm-hmm. I think that teaching is what, what keeps me grounded in, all right, what would be kind here? What, what is the kindest choice to make? Mm-hmm. What is kind for yeah. me? What would be kind for the other person? And I cannot claim to be perfect in that. Um, I am human, um, but to to try and look with that perspective um, is, I think, yeah, I think I think that's that's where I'm I'm growing towards as a as a person and yeah, my that's personal. beautiful.
0: <laughs> my own personal relationship yeah. development. Yeah, I hear that. Like, just to always be asking, you know, what is the kindest, most loving thing that, you know, action that I can take in each moment is a very evolved spiritual practice. So thank you for offering us that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So from working with clients, um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that people face when they're exploring non-monogamy? Oh,
1: I think that... um, one common thing that I see come up is that people don't really take enough. People will sort of be like, yeah, this, this sounds like a great idea. Let's open up our relationship. And they don't take enough time to figure out what that means for them and what they want that mm-hmm. to look like. There's a lot mm-hmm. of trying to figure it out as we stumble along. And I think that's understandable mm-hmm. because we don't have a lot of role modeling or templates or models yet for what mm-hmm. that looks like. I mean, it's only in the last three or four years that we're getting more representation in the media. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the, these, I look at it as three key questions. Your what, why, and where. So what kind of non-monogamy are you looking for? Um, Because there's many different ways to do non-monogamy honestly. It could be polyamory, it could be swinging, um, it could be monogamish, um, and there's all sorts of permutations within those. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the big question is why? Why are you looking to do this? There are some people, and I count myself amongst them, who have... Gone and explored polyamory because it's a means of running away from the things that you don't want to talk about in your relationship, <laughs> mm-hmm. or it's a means of uh, emotionally bypassing the pain that you are um, that feels too overwhelming to connect in with in yourself, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I think if that's what's going on for us, we need to we need to sort of address that. And that doesn't mean that non-monogamy isn't the path for you, um, but it's good to be aware of that. If if that is part of what's driving you, if that's part of what's influencing your choice in non-monogamy, to get really honest and transparent that that's a piece in there. Um, mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. many other reasons people could choose non-monogamy, wanting to be in an intentional community, wanting to challenge the cultural scripts around ownership and, um, mm-hmm. and relationship escalator, uh, and so forth. Uh, so that's uh, getting in touch with that piece around why. And the mm-hmm. where, that's about where is this going? Like, what do you want this to look like in five years or ten years? Or to relate back to the question that you asked earlier about, you know, aging and how do I want this to look when, when I am... Um, as a, when I'm an elder, when I may not be able to do everything for myself and I, I will be looking to have looking to my relationships as additional support, what I want that to look like. And to create a long-term vision and to do so for yourself. Uh, very often people try to um, lean into what their partner's vision is without looking at their own authentic vision because we're very people-pleasing, right? We, we want to be generous. We want to mm-hmm. give and and be magnanimous but to get very clear uh, you know with you as an individual authentically what's going to work for you uh in terms of where you want this to go and mm-hmm. I find that when people haven't uh, at least talked about these questions because the answers to these may not be immediately obvious uh some of these answers mm-hmm. we only find as we we take those early steps in and and try things out and then check back in and, and recalibrate. Um, but when we don't take the time to be mindful around these questions, it um, it means that we're running on assumptions, and um, assumptions is where we start to fall into hurting ourselves and one another um,
0: and the other people that we're starting to engage with. hmm Right. And you've mentioned the relationship escalator a few times. Um, mm-hmm. And I, from what I know about that, um, there's this belief in the default world that unless your relationship um, continues on for the rest of your life and one of the partners dies, then the relationship failed. So anything less than one of you dying or both of you dying is a failed relationship. And that that's what I see in the default world. So can yeah. you talk about the different ways that relationships can be successful that don't look like that? Oh,
1: well, I think that depends on, on individual perspectives. Um, and this goes back to that question earlier about what makes you feel safe and secure? What fulfills you? Um, Mm -hmm. and there's, there's the love languages aspect of this, um, And I I like to expand that into what are the ways that you love to engage in love. Um, For me, I love to co-create with partners. I love to collaborate Mm -hmm. on creative projects, whether that's writing or putting on an event or even just brainstorming ideas together. Um, And, um, you know, for me, with that as, as a kind of love language, um, a relationship for me is is successful if we get to create great things together. But that's my mm-hmm. measure of success. And mm-hmm. my measure of success is different from what your measure of success might be. Um, I mean, healthy relationships off the escalator, I, I I will sometimes take my clients through. I have a whole list of looking at different aspects, you know, like, what do you want to be experiencing in your sexual relationship? Um, What's more important to you in terms of time management to have to see this person frequently or to have infrequent but long uh, times, uh, long period of time spent together? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's it's very subjective, and I think this is another one of those places where we we have to get out of the, the box of default assumptions and open up to this wide world of which admittedly can be somewhat terrifying because there's so many possibilities, Uh, this wide Mm -hmm. world of, okay, what what actually works for me? What feels good for me? Where do I feel fulfilled? And how do I feel fulfilled? How do I feel
0: safe? How do I feel loved? Mm -hmm. So you talked about being married before, and you spoke of your ex, in um, a positive way you didn't seem to have resentment about it so even though that relationship didn't go until you one or one or both of you died um do you still consider a successful relationship and why
1: yeah yeah you're the first person to ever ask me that question and i really appreciate that (laughs) question um i i consider it a successful relationship we both grew and learned a lot and although we are not close, um, we still have, you know, occasional conversations when stuff comes up. And um, I, I, I feel very honored that a lot of my, um, a lot of my uh, exes and, and former lovers are people who I have stayed very close to. Um, I still regularly talk to my first boyfriend in high school. Um, we have great conversations because he's also now... Uh, Uh, explored uh, the realms of non-monogamy and uh, Mm -hmm. it's yeah I I think that there's a piece in there especially for my marriage around we grew together and um, to leave a relationship knowing that you were able to uh, see one another like really really witness who the other person was and feel that you Mm -hmm. were seen in the relationship um, I think that's a really beautiful experience, and to know that relationships are not necessarily about the ultimate destination that they take you, but more about the journey. And maybe that ties mm-hmm. in again for me with my my spirituality and and, and the the way that that has influenced my uh, approach to non-monogamy. But that we are here. Um, how does that saying go? We're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And um, the part of that human experience is, oh, my gosh, how do I relate to all these other people? Um, mm-hmm. So when we, can, when we can engage in that relating and know that we're authentic in there, I think that's, that's also a good measure of, of a
0: successful or healthy
1: relationship.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, you're a real role model for that. Thank you. Thank you. So so let's talk a little bit about your, what you do in your work with a little bit of time we have left. Um, can you talk about what is the monogamy hangover and the monogamy detox? <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, the monogamy hangover is uh, all those those default scripts that we hold on to and that are, are just unconsciously programmed into us around what we're supposed to get out of uh, monogamous relationships and, and uh, all these assumptions. And uh, they kind of sabotage us, um, not just in non-monogamy, but also in monogamous relationships, they sabotage us because that's what leads us to complacency. It's things like the expectation of telepathy, that your partner's is just going to be able to read your mind, and um, fear of, of being left alone, uh, and things like that, you know, your relationship is only uh, valid as long as there's a sexual component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the, these scripts, they, they, they're not very helpful. <laughs> and um, while it can feel a little easier to have these default sets of, like, this is what we're supposed to do, um, we live in a, a multicultural world and these are scripts that are based on one particular cultural perspective on relating mm-hmm. um i mean I, I i was born in england i grew up in the middle east my mother is greek latin american i and i grew up with a you know a yogic based spirituality so i I've, I've had a lot of different uh, cultural influences in my life mm-hmm. um, and um so I, I you know this this monogamy hangover is all these toxic scripts The Monogamy Detox is a course that I've created that is designed to help us, um, well, first of all, recognize what are all the unhelpful stories, all these mythologies and and fantasies about relationships that are holding us back. Mm -hmm. And then guide, uh, guide people into learning how to have a sense of independence while also being in kind and loving relationships. So how do we balance deep emotional relationships alongside um, deep sexual relationships or relationships that aren't sexual? Um, mm-hmm. And all of this is, is geared towards supporting people in feeling whole and healthy as individuals. This idea that we don't need someone else to complete, to complete us, but that Mm -hmm. we are whole and worthy and complete as we are, and that the process of engaging in relationships then becomes a celebration of all that Mm -hmm. we are and all that those that we engage with are.
0: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love that. Um, So (laughs) since we just have a little bit more time, I'd like to give you um, a few minutes to tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you, and I believe you also have an offer for our listeners. I do.
1: So uh, the Monogamy Detox course is starting on October 10th, and um, you can find the information for that on monogamydetox.com. And I have a discount code to offer listeners. The, this is to give you 30% off. Um, and I, I should mention this course it 's six weeks online, but it 's a lifetime access course, so if you do it once, every time it repeats, you get to take the course again and re immerse yourself in that the practices and the process of it so uh, this is to give you thirty percent off and the the code is leading edge love specifically for Great. listeners of this show um, and if you want to get a hold of me um, you can uh, go to my website radicalrelationshipcoaching.ca That's radicalrelationshipcoaching.ca and all the information is there about what I do in my coaching. Um, I work with people one-on-one and uh, with couples and triads and and even a few quads. Um, I do my coaching uh, via phone or via Skype so I can work with people wherever they are in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I... I work. I have a package that I for people who are just starting to open up their relationship, where we go through, um, you know, the basics of those questions: what, why, where, and how to create mm-hmm. a, a template for yourself of, of um, creating safety as you're exploring the open relationship. Um, but I also have this package for people who are solo and uh, embarking on an open relationship. From that space, mm-hmm. um, and I also offer one-on-one coaching for dating. Um, if you're wanting to, you're like, I don't know how to go out there and date people. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, ha- I have a series of workshops that I've offered uh, here in Canada around communication and intimacy, and all that is on my website. That's RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca.
0: Great, and then thank you for that offer. So MonogamyDetox.com. You're offering a 30% discount with the code LeadingEdgeLove, right? That is correct. Okay, thank you for that very generous offer. Um, so it was really nice talking with you, Mel. I wish you all the best with your program and the rest of your business and your wonderful um, uh, relationship anarchy life. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you'll come back in the future and, and let us know how it's going. Thank you so much, Timothy. This has been lovely okay you have a nice day talk to you soon take care okay bye-bye